Okay, folks, let's find John chapter 12. We're going to read verses 20 through 26, and we'll study for just a few moments. I'm going to wrap this up today, do everything I can to get this through today, and then we'll start something brand new um, after Thanksgiving, back when we're back here on a Wednesday night again after Thanksgiving. Um, Here in verse 20 of John chapter 12, um, John writes, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from... Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father God, I adore you and thank you, Father God. I need you right now, Father God. I need your strength. I need your focus in my mind and in my heart, Father God. I feel scattered. And I'm asking you, Father God, now that as we study, Father God, to bring peace to me, especially. Because I need it desperately, Father God. I ask you, please, God, to bless us. Press upon our hearts, Father God. Make things clear that we're muddy or are are opaque at times, Father God. Give us a kind of clarity, Father God, about every issue, God, sitting in this room as we study them, Father, so that we can grow thereby. We need that, God. We're only going to grow by the truth. The truth is the one non-negotiable part of this, Father. As long as the truth is brought to our hearts, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Father God, uh, our hearts are going to change and we're going to look more like you every day. And that's what we need. We need to look like Jesus. We need to have our lives and our hearts Uh, reformed, Father God, and we need to to feel the touch of the Master's hand. We need those things. So, Father God, I pray for you now. I pray to you now, Father God, and I pray for us. I pray, Father God, that as we gather around the Word, Father, that you're going to do amazing things in us tonight, Father God. Um, I'm I'm thankful, Father God, for every word of this study at the same time, Father God. I know, know, God, there's so much more that could be said, and I pray, God, that I I know I could have done better, and I pray, God, that, that when I'm that, that later I'll be able to do more, Father. So bless us, God, now. In the name of Christ, I pray, Father. Amen. Now, a couple things I want to kind of point out to you before we kind of pick up where, where the notes have left off. And uh, Jan, is it getting warmer out there? <laughs> I, I know. I, I feel the same way. Um, yay, Mississippi. Wasn't it like summer like a week ago or something like that? Yeah, and it's going to be 67 Sunday. We see the 60s this weekend. Yay. Um, yay us. Okay. Um, remind me again when it's hot that I say nothing bad about it being hot. Okay. 100 degree days I can take very nicely. Um, so I want to look at a couple things. Let's look at the beginning of the passage. He says, and among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, I'm going to kind of put it in time and place. All right, you hear back in chapter 10 of John, um, you hear some talk about, about Solomon's, Solomon's portico, Solomon's colonnade, another, another version translated as colonnade. Um, Josephus described it. It's a fairly large sort of, uh, sort of porch, all right, where um, that had actually been added and expanded during the time of Herod, during the time of King Herod point is this, is that um, Jesus spends some time there on Solomon's porch, and 
in journeying onto Solomon's porch, it takes people ex- right through a part of the uh, temple that's called the Court of the Gentiles. All right, now for the Court of the Gentiles, I guess the best way for me to explain this is, is that, and it may not even be, be, be super substantive to what we need to talk about tonight, but I feel like it's necessary for me to talk about it. Um, that to make your way onto, on, uh, there into the court of the Gentiles, meant that you are now in the most, um, the least sacred place of the temple. Because Gentiles were allowed there. Gentiles were allowed to come and visit, and they did often. Um, when we see the term Greek, we need to latch onto that term a little bit. If you recall back, in, in, back later on in the book of Acts, when Luke is writing about those Greeks, especially those in Athens, they were always what? They were always wanting to learn something new. They were always about what the latest philosophy was. Athens had been an international city uh, since virtually its founding. It was on the kind of on that cusp between East and West. So that Greek mind was that transition mind between Asia and, to be honest with you, the really ancient part of the world, China. Where when, when, when Europe, we were throwing rocks at each other, the Chinese were living in a very advanced society. You know, they're shooting off fireworks where we're spearing each other. That's the difference. So there was at, at that crossroads of trade, that crossroads of information, that crossroads of learning and philosophy. So that's, that's who those Greeks were. And, and we can now put ourselves in the mindset of those men, uh, we're assuming they're men, who come there, they're in that court of the Gentiles, and they've heard about this Jesus. And they've come wanting to, what does it say? It says that so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm not in, always sure when I, when I say these things. I do want to say this. They're, being a, they're asking a very legitimate question. And we know what happens. I just read it momentarily. Um, Philip's going to go to Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip go to Jesus. And they relay the message. And then Jesus gives an answer. And in wonderful Jesus way, he in no way answers the question that was asked. Right? They say we want to see Jesus. And he says, um, he says, uh, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This guy just won't see you. And you're saying this, the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So in fine Jesus' fashion, he does not answer the wrong question. He has not made a mistake. What he has done is he has, he has seen now to the heart of not just Andrew and Philip's problem, not just the heart, Chris, of these Greeks and what their problem is, but he is now seen to the very core of humanity's problem. And in fact, their language in Greek absolutely uh, reveals this, okay? Absolutely reveals it. The word they use for see is orao, is oraho, and it means literally to see with the mind. To see with the mind. To, it has metaphorical meaning always. It means to see with the mind. It is spiritually to see, to see and experience, to perceive Jesus literally in His deity. Now, whether that is intentional in them or not, 
I do not know that answer. I know that is what they said because the Bible is truthfully stated. So the words that came out of their mouths were those very words. This is what they asked to do. Even if they didn't understand the depth of it, this is what they asked to do. Now what they've done, they've managed to do for all of us is, is now ask the question that we really need answered. What you really need to do tonight, what all of us really need to do, is to spiritually see and absolutely perceive Jesus in who He is. And that's exactly the answer He gives. Precise answer He gives. He says, today the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So who is He? He is the Son of Man, prophesied by Daniel, awaiting those moments in which He was to be completely glorified in His sacrifice for the sins of the world. So He is. He says, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So now He has done something else for us, something absolutely fantastic. He has made not only His death profitable for all humanity by what he says, but he now looks at us in the face and says, oh, by the way, believer in Christ, your death can be more profitable than your life. It's an amazing idea. We think of death as an end. We still think, now we may think of death as heaven, but we don't see our death as being something that can bear fruit. But in saying this, he says, by the way, everybody dies. Not everybody dies in a meaningful way. Not everyone's death means something. He says it can mean something. Truly, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Oh, my word. I don't know if these guys were listening. I know Andrew and Philip are listening. I don't know, Julie, if... if if the men who gathered there were really hearing this, I don't think most of us have really heard it. He says, if you love your life, you lose it. Now, I, I'm still, I've been preaching this message for 20 years now. I've been preaching this passage of Scripture for as long as I've really had any inkling of understanding of the Scriptures. And it still floors me when I read it. He means to say to us, do not love your life in this world. And every fiber of our being says love it, doesn't it? Everything in us says, says life is the most important thing. And he says if you love it, you're going to lose it. How many people in this room love their lives? How many people do we see every day that just they're in love with their life? How does he come? He says, and whoever hates his life in this world, would keep it for eternal life. So now I'm not supposed to love my life. I'm in fact supposed to hate my life. How do I hate it? When my instincts, pansy, say protect it. My instincts tell me don't greet death as something I want. Um, I, and I know we've all done this. I know we've all done this. I always bring it up and I don't mean to be so morbid. Now, you know, I'm kind of a Mormon person by nature anyway. People in this room, have you ever gone to bed at night and thought it would be nice not to wake up in the morning? Maybe you don't want to admit it. I have. 
I have. I've been that place in my life. Not throwing your life away, but just like, God, if you brought to me, God, if you brought to me um, the peace of death tonight, I would not consider it an injustice. I would consider it glorious. People in this room have had, enough, had that kind of pressure on them before, haven't you? For you didn't know where else to turn and you thought, God, if I could just. Now, wonderfully, he didn't greet that with, with an amen, did he? He didn't, he didn't grant that wish that we might, to be honest way, honestly, foolishly or in a trivial fashion. Um, every time I'm under more pressure, I think I can't take it. But then I realize I said that the last time I was under a whole bunch of pressure. You'd be surprised what, through the power of Christ, you can bear, can't you? Miss Diane's shaking her head. Miss Diane, you've been there. I've been there too. Where you thought, this might kill me. I might just die from this, like of a broken heart, right? And guess what? Stubbornly, your heart kept on beating, didn't it? No, you just you simply surrendered. You surrendered. Said God, this 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 is this is it. I surrender, God. You do with me as you see fit. And he saw you through it. He saw you through it. Um, so I don't think I'm saying that we need... That, I don't think Christ is saying, and I'm interpreting, that we need to treat it flippantly. We don't. We don't treat it flippantly. But that we see our lives in this world as precious insofar as they bear fruit for the kingdom. Brian, we live very unattached lives. And I say this to a daddy with a, with a new baby. And we still live extremely unattached lives, don't we? Your citizenship is in heaven. And so is mine. We'll never feel at home here, will we? Because it is not our home. We were born to a different land. We are prepared to be a different, separate, particular people. That's what God wants from us. Now, I think He gives us what I think is the best part of it at the very end. At the very end, as much as I love all that, He says in verse 26, He says, and it's kind of cryptic, and I want to try to explain it. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I think he gives us three ways in which God, both we are to respond and God responds. And just look at me, look and help me really quickly. To serve Jesus. One, follow Jesus wherever he goes, whenever he goes. If anyone serves him, he must follow me. So, in order to follow Jesus, that means we really follow Him. That means we don't just follow metaphorically. We don't just follow in some type of a rhetorical fashion. But it means, Miss Dolores, God now rules. It means we go where He says for us to go and we do what He says for us to do. It means we have surrendered leadership of our lives to such an extent that now God determines the path for us and not us. When you were lost... You ran things. You were supposed to, because it's all lost people. All lost people can depend on are themselves. 
But once you are found by Jesus, it means that you are now owned by Jesus. It means that you are now born again into a saving but servant relationship with Christ. He is Lord and Master of you. And if He says go, you go. And if He looks at somebody in this room that's never been on an airplane and is urging you to get on that airplane with that passport and jump the pond, then guess what you better do? Get on that airplane with that passport and jump that pond because God doesn't care that you're scared. And in fact, God is more glorified if you're more afraid. Hey, I've been a lot of places. My kids always make those comments at school. You've been so many places. And I was like, you want the truth? I was scared going to every one of them. Every one of them. Terrified to go. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I've been places where I plotted to back out at the last minute. Seriously. When I was with y'all at Christmas that time and they weren't going to let us get on the airplane, remember? A little, about 10% of me was hoping they'd tell us we weren't going to be able to get a flight. I was already missing my wife and my kids. I love to go to Haiti and I love to share the gospel. But a little part of me wants to, wanted to go home and be with my family. It's sacrificial if you want to be home. If you can't wait to get away, it's not really very sacrificial, is it? Right? If you can't wait to get out of here, boy, I can't wait to get away from all of them. You know, that's not much of a sacrifice, is it? You know, that's a vacation. All right? In fact, it is, I want to be with mine. I love my family. I love to be surrounded by them, even when they drive me crazy. I want to be with them. And if you're afraid to get on an airplane, if you're afraid to fly, or afraid to go to, afraid to, go to other countries, it's that much more of a sacrifice. For people for whom it's easy, it's not much sacrifice, is it? There's not much risk. There's a great deal of risk when you want to be, when you're, when you're afraid. So, so Christ now runs your life. He now owns your life. And He makes those decisions. So that, that's the first one. Where, wherever, uh, if you want to search me, He must follow me. And then He says this, And where I am, there will my servant be also. Now I may be slightly spiritualizing this, and if I do, I, I want you to understand I'm walking that razor thin edge, and I, but I'm prayerful and I want to be obedient. Two, there's a different, he's saying, he seems to be saying the same thing twice, and I don't think he's saying the same thing. I think he means this. Where I am, there will my servant be also. Where Jesus stands, there will be his servant. So let's look at it this way. Where the work of Jesus is, there you will find the servant of Jesus. Where the issue of Jesus is, there you will find the issue of Jesus. What is dear to the heart of, the, of our Lord and Savior is dear to the heart of His people. What He stands for in ideology, what He stands for in... Um, what He stands for in ideology, what He stands for and what He's willing to sacrifice for, we're willing to sacrifice for that. If Jesus is willing to die for the sins of the people, we're willing to die to take the gospel message to the people. Who Jesus is as a man, and I don't just mean the God-man, but who Jesus was with His flesh and where He went with that flesh and what He did with that flesh is now what we emulate. Who Jesus is is who we are to try to be. What He thinks is what we are to try to think. Who Jesus declared Himself to be is who we are to try to be for the world. If anyone serves Him as follow me where I am, 
there and where I am, there will my servant be also. It's where Jesus lands on every issue. It's where he's to find Mike and where he's to find Joe and where he's to find Kimberly. Who defines right and wrong for us? Jesus does. Who defines morality for us? Jesus does. Who defines ethics and the ethical treatment of each other? Jesus defines these things. You know, we, wanna, we want the salvation. So many people do. They don't want the Lordship. They don't want Jesus in their business. But the fact of the matter is, for us to really be obedient, to really respond to Jesus the way He responds to our hearts in salvation means that where He is on every issue, that's where you're going to find us. But then finally, number three. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Servants of Christ honor him. And God honors them. I, when I saw this in the passage, as, just, just, as I was just mulling over it, I'm not, I wasn't sure then what it meant to be honored by God. My heart kept going to that passage that I, I talk about all the time in Hebrews chapter 11, where it speaks of those men who'd given so much in the Old Testament, those men who'd suffered so much. And then, and then uh, the writer of Hebrews says, men of whom the, wor- the world was not worthy. And I've always been uncomfortable with that because I'm absolutely comfortable, um, absolutely comfortable saying, you know what? That um, an Old Testament version is Isaiah. An Old Testament version is uh, would be would be Ezekiel or Jeremiah or these men that suffered so greatly for the truth of the Word of God. Would be Daniel. These kind of men. I'm comfortable thinking if you find a New Testament parallel of saying Paul, John, James. I'm comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable seeing me in that light, but this is what God says. It doesn't mean I'm there yet. It means that there is within the life of each and every believer in this room the potential to be honored by God Himself. The way we used to say it when I was in the, in the Missionary Baptist Church, our pastors would always say it. they say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I bet I heard that in every single sermon sermon for, for 18 years. Well done, my good and faithful. The notion that God could look down from His throne and look at this, this, and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That God would look at us and not be displeased with us. Because most of the time I think a lot of us feel displeasing to God, don't we? We feel like failures. We feel like there's a standard up there and we know it's there, but we just can't meet it. There's a standard for holiness and morality and ethics. There's a standard for study and service and work. And we're just not getting there. We're never quite getting there. It's easy to feel that way, isn't it? I do. But this idea that that if... I go where God tells me to go. And if I will go and then stand for the things that Christ tells me to stand for, 
that he'll look at me and say, you're honored by your father. It's, it's a touching thing, isn't it? I don't know what you want. But I would ask, anyone here ever want their father to be proud of them? Do anything to please him. Anything. Not just to love me. Because there's one thing to be loved. It's another thing for that, that father to be proud of you. What is it like to realize that at that moment that your heavenly father is not angry with you or disappointed in you, but that he's proud of you? Nowhere in here is perfection, is it? Shay, I didn't see perfection. I saw obedience, and I saw a willingness to submit my mind and my heart to Him. Not perfection. He doesn't say, go there and accomplish this great thing, and I'll be proud of you. He doesn't say, go there and, and have these wonderful words of oratory that just sway the hearts of men and women, and I'll be proud of you. Don't be this great preacher, this great mom, or this great dad, this great servant, this great missionary. Just be obedient. Just be obedient and believe the Word of God in all instances. And the Lord of the universe, the God of all creation, the eternal Heavenly Father will look at Julie or Mike or Stephen or Brian and say, essentially, my paraphrase, I am proud of my son. I am proud of my daughter. It is not it's not just a novel idea. It's a glorious and awesome truth that God would look at us and be proud. And be proud. To be honored by God is to perish in a climactic obedience to the Lord of creation. It's not, Glenn, it's not about dying right now, but it's that kind of, I guess, the sly kind of dying we talk about around here, which means we've got to die to some things, don't we? I have to die to having things my way all the time. Pansy, I have to die to, to formulating my own truth about things so that I can sleep better at night. Okay? I have to die. I have to absolutely die to finding security in anyone else or anything else but Jesus. I have to die to those things. That's the kind of death, that's about the climactic perishing I'm talking about. It means where we literally start to see our baptisms as more than symbolic nonsense, but truly spiritual deaths in which we collectively as a people have died to the ways of the world and been born again to the way only of Jesus. 
We tend to think of the way of salvation, that way of holiness, a way of arriving at salvation. Salvation is the first stop on a road that leads to eternity. It is not a time. It is not a time in which we are trying to seek something for ourselves, but in which Christ shows us step by step how to be pleasing to Him and how to grow the kingdom. That's the climactic perishing. By physical, mental, and spiritual abandonment to the Lordship of Christ, you and I stand to defend the truth of Scripture by the testimony of our lives. We don't become... We're not Bibles. Don't don't see it that way. Don't see it that way. I don't mean for you to. There's nothing elevated about our lives in that way that arrives at, at, at Scripture. We only have the Scriptural truth. That's all we have. And it's okay that that's all we have. It's all we need. But what it means is this. What really needs to happen, and I'll, I'll pick on me first, then you can pick on yourselves, is that you would look at my life and, and Lucas, good or bad, good situation or bad situation, you see biblical truth confirmed in Tony and not denied in Tony. In anger and frustration, in deep love, in sorrow, in disappointment. I have used that one before. I prayed over that a lot. Because, you know what, still I say it so much. The hardest thing in the human life to deal with is disappointment. Disappointment. When not only do things not turn out the way you want them to, you realize they're never going to be the way you wanted them to be. You had set, like a little child, you'd set your heart on something, and it didn't turn out. God said no. You thought you'd be great if you could just do this. And you got a radically different future. Then in the midst of disappointment, can you see... Scriptural truth confirmed in Tony or denied in Tony? Because there's the opportunity. Not in my perfection. More gloriously in my weakness. More gloriously in challenge. More gloriously in trial and in tragedy and in sorrow. We see the Bible confirmed in people and not denied in people. See, you wouldn't be biblical in that way all you are, all you are is an example of what biblical truth does. Then finally, only in death, in every kind and type. Ultimately, Miss Beverly, in our deaths. Ultimately, we go to the Lord as believers in death. I mean this, especially, but essentially, our deaths ought to be different. Have I been at the deathbed of believers whose deaths were not radically different? Yes, I have. There's no doubt about that. I do not doubt their belief in Christ. I may doubt their maturity, but I don't, do not doubt their belief. But ultimately, we ought to die different. It doesn't mean perfectly. It doesn't mean the kind you might write 
epic poems about this death of Brother Tony. He died so well. He lived so poorly and died so well. Does it mean that? It means that when you're at the when you're holding the hand of a believer and you're being ushered, you're you're watching them being ushered into paradise, it really ought to be something palpable. You ought to walk away thinking, what did I just witness? Because uh, I've been there before too, where we were just like, what was that? To the verging on the miraculous. What a, what a glory to be. What a glory that it ought to be like that. It's not always, but it ought to be. In every kind. But at the same time, in the tiny little deaths that we die every day, folks. Every day we die to TV. Every day we die to, to, um, to, the, to the world out there that allures us. Every day we die to gossip. Every day we die to hatred or bitterness. I tell you, that's another one of those things that goes along with disappointment, folks. You get old enough, Joe, you start getting bitter about some stuff, don't you? I never saw that in me. I've always made fun of my mom and dad about that stuff because it seems like they've never forgiven anybody anything in their entire lives. I feel it coming on. In the way I used to be really, to be honest with you, afraid to be angry at people. Do you know what I mean? You remember that, that thing when you, like, I couldn't be angry at them because I'm a little afraid of them. You get old enough, you stop being scared of folks, don't you? I never thought that would change. I'm like, oh, no. I, would, I wouldn't speak up when I was in my 30s. Sometimes I can't help but speak up now. I can't stop myself. And I get about 10 years older, I'm going to be saying all those embarrassing things that my parents have been saying for years. But along with all that open mouth, closed mind stuff, goes a real hint toward bitterness, to being angry about stuff that, that disappointed you, Mike, that you couldn't change. And we got to die to bitterness. Because if you don't think bitterness won't hollow out your late life in Christ, you're a fool. It will. You'll drown in bitterness. You'll drown in regret. And you'll drown in disappointment. And you'll drown in bitterness. Bitterness will rob you of everything that God plans on giving you when you're old. Because, by the way, some of us are old. And a lot of us in this room are going to be old real, real, real fast. And the Bible never talks badly about being old, does it? The Bible always lifts up old age as something to be proud of, isn't it? Something to enjoy and glory in. What a kooky culture we're in where people wouldn't want to be old. Tell you what, if you're old in Haiti, you're the man. If you're old in Haiti, you manage to live long enough to get old in Nicaragua or Honduras, they have things but carry you around. You're respected. Here, we don't want to be old because people look down on old people. It's a ridiculous idea culturally. It's stupid. I want my old age to matter, Glenda. I want my old age to be joyous. I don't want it to be given over to bitterness. I want to die to that bitterness. I want to die to disappointment. I want to die to regret. Die to those things. Then finally, um, through this, can the life of the believer be used to grow the kingdom, expand 
the, and expand the reach of the gospel. Our blood will water the church and it's going to bring growth to this body. I mean our spiritual blood and maybe our physical blood. We'll water the church and grow it. Let's pray. Father God, I love and adore you. I thank you so much, God, for the opportunity to come, Lord, and to uh, preach this. Father God, I pray that I preached it rightly. Father God, I pray that I was um, not too loose in my words, Father. I pray that I was not too loose in my approach, God, but I wanted, God, I wanted to be to be easy, and I didn't want it to be, Father God, so stilted. I wanted, God, to be a conversation between, between a, a pastor who loves his people and the people he loves. And so I pray, Father God, that I did as you commanded me to do, and that I spoke, God, what you wanted me to speak. And I pray, Father God, that tonight, God, that we, we were encouraged by it, because I want to be. I want to be encouraged by it, Father God, and I want to see growth in myself and growth in your people, Father God. God, I pray against those things that would stand in our way. I pray against disappointment and regret and bitterness, Father God. I, I pray against God's anger that can rule us, Father God, and that can rob us of joy. And I pray, Father God, that we are a surrendered people and that, that, Father God, we are so dependent upon you and so rejecting of the world, so hating of our lives in the world, Father God, that all that matters to us today, all that matters, God, is your opinion of us. And I pray, Father God, for that. I pray, God, that we will go where you demand that we will, Father God, stand for what you stand for. And in doing that, Father God, I pray, God, that you, you honor us, that you are proud of us, Father. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.